On the following day, when they'd come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And when evening came and they went out of the city, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And this, I know, I know, it's a ton of material for one week, but this isn't one of those things that can be divided up. And this is actually um, another Markin sandwich, which I hope you remember is the term that scholars use to describe Mark's tendency to place one story in the middle of another story so that the two stories can be used to interpret one another. So they're not separate. They cannot be interpreted separately. And that's important for this. When we don't pay attention to that, a lot of times people will uh, take something completely out of context or they will get the wrong ideas. They'll try and take something discreetly, which is meant to be interpreted by another thing. Um, so we have a couple of really abused stories here where people make them mean all kinds of things by removing them from history, by separating them from one another, and by not knowing the temple or understanding that the fortress Antonia with a ton of soldiers on it emptied right onto the northwestern end of the Temple Mount. And people misinterpret it because they see an excuse for bad behavior and they aren't careful to notice what is and is not said. So let's look at the history and the text and figure out what's happening here and what it tells us about the mission of the Messiah. And remember, we're, we're continuing on here with the condemnation of Jerusalem, the condemnation of the temple, the condemnation of the temple administration, gearing up to, to where in chapter 13, he actually um, prophesies its destruction. 
we're going to see why. So, hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it. It's called Context for Kids, and I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com, and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly context where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. As usual, all scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. All right, so we're in chapter 11, just like last week, and we're starting in verse 12. Of course, last week was the untriumphal entry where Yeshua was completely snubbed by the leaders of Jerusalem and the temple hierarchy, all the people who had the power to acknowledge him and recognize him as king and messiah, and they didn't do so. So that's just, that spells the beginning of the end, all right? Verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Okay, remember they, and that means Yeshua and the twelve. They'd on, on the previous day, they'd entered Jerusalem to great fanfare um, by the crowds um, while being snubbed by anyone in authority, Okay. The latter we know from the other synoptic gospels where the leadership was yelling at Yeshua to tell his followers to pipe down. They made their way up to the temple. Um, Yeshua looked around at everything and then unceremoniously left. Okay, no pun intended. The text says that they went to Bethany, presumably to spend the night, perhaps at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who we, whom we know live there. And the next day they return. And it says that Yeshua was hungry. And before I go on, that's important because there was a heresy in the early church called docetism, which claimed that Yeshua didn't have a real body. Okay, his body was some sort of apparition, so he didn't feel anything, didn't really get hungry, didn't really suffer and die, all that jazz. And it was, it, it was, they came up with it to combat the horror that pagans felt over the concept of a god who could be killed by mere men. And I suppose it was a well-intentioned accommodation, but it was a disastrous one that led into Gnosticism. But no, Yeshua was hungry, he got thirsty on the cross, he was fully human as well as fully divine, real body, real needs. We don't need to understand how it works, and we aren't clever enough anyway, or is, you know, that just me. 
Okay, sorry if you could hear all that noise. I've got a Doshin who needs to be with me almost all the time. He has doggy dementia. And he's also, his ears are bothering him. So he's flap, 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 and wanted to be out. So we'll see how long I can record before he starts barking when he finds that I'm not there with him. All right, uh, verse 13. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, this jives nicely with the time of year when fig trees in Israel put out their leaves in March and April. But fruit? You know, at most, Yeshua would find the horrible-tasting male fruit on the tree. Not the sweet, juicy female fruit that we want to eat and arrives in late summer. Not to mention the fact that the male fig, the capra fig, is where wasps lay their eggs, boys and girls. So just no and no. <laughs> I tell you, I had, I had quite the education looking this up. They look yummy, but just don't go there. But people think, I mean, could you even imagine? Oh, oh. Um, but people think, why would Yeshua look for fruit out of season? That just doesn't seem reasonable, you know? It's like, what gives? Well, this is the first of a two-part prophetic action carried out in three separate scenes. And last week, when he chose a donkey's colt to ride on, that was another prophetic action. Yeshua knew what he would find, just as the inspecting angel of Ezekiel knew what he would find when he was sent to look through the temple uh, with the prophet Ezekiel. And just like the two angels knew, they would find a massive lot of wickedness when they went to Sodom. Now, have you ever had someone ask you a question and then say, you need to know that I never ask a question if I don't already know the answer. So choose your words carefully. So Yeshua was hungry. He was in a, he was going to a place where fruit can be found, but not always. But because of when he looked, there was no fruit to be had. It was disappointing and dissatisfying, much like, I imagine, his visit to the temple the night before. He certainly knew what he would find, but he still had to look, okay? It would be unjust not to look. And, and, and Yahweh's never unjust. So, however, you know, unlike a fruit tree, the temple should always be a fruitful place. That's why it exists in the first place. Without fruitfulness, the temple's nothing but a... We'll get back to that. Verse 14. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And, uh... There's a lot of people who get really upset about this unfair action. You know, as though a tree has feelings or something. But if he inspected that tree and all there was was the large purple male fruit starting to burst with baby wasps, then it would be telling us something about the insides of the sandwich coming up in a few verses here. Just because something has fruit doesn't mean that the fruit is good or that it won't harm you. Um, think about the Wizard of Oz from 1939 and all those apple trees with gorgeous, shiny apples. And they end up, you know, getting lobbed at Dorothy and her friends. You know, like social media religious groups. 
The fruit might look good for a distance, but as you get closer, you know, as it gets closer to your head, you should know when to duck out of the way. Now, fig trees are repeatedly used in the Hebrew scriptures as a metaphor for Israel. Uh, Hosea 9.10, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Joel 1, 6 through 7. For a nation has come against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Jeremiah 8, verses 12 through 13. Were they ashamed when they committed this abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. That's really bad. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overgrown, says the Lord. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. Boy, if that is not right there describing Yeshua's prophetic action of... That was when Yahweh came to gather them through Yeshua. And there was no fruit. Woe is, and there wouldn't have been any fruit in the summer when the figs were ripe either, okay? Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. This is Micah 7, 1 through 6, by the way. The godly has perished from the earth. And there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, and the most upright of them a thorn hedge. Dang. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. We've heard a lot about neighbors. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard your doors. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the men of his own house. That is damning. And um, when we, I didn't write this down, but um, in Malachi um, 4, what is the job of John the Baptist? He comes to turn the hearts of the fathers toward the son and the sons toward their father or else. And so now we're getting the or else. Now, figs are what I call a very fruitful fruit. Like pomegranates, they are just 
loaded with seeds. Okay, get this. Between 30 and 1,600 per fruit. It'd be really weird you get one with 30 and you get one with 1,600, but I'm sure it depends on species. Even fans of Fig Newtons, and I love a Fig Newton. I, I wish I could eat wheat again. Know all about those seeds. And seeds are how fruit makes more fruit. You knew that. And so we shouldn't be shocked that there's so much talk about fruitfulness in the Bible. And this is beyond having children. Um, not everyone will have children, but every believer is responsible for growing good fruit and being fruitful for the kingdom. And you can have a million kids and not be fruitful for the kingdom, obviously, right? Um, and we would think that that would especially be true for the people in charge of the temple, right? And the leadership and Torah teachers of Israel, right? At Passover of all times, they should have been on their best behavior, but instead we see them snubbing Yeshua and we will see them plotting his downfall and death over the course of the next, what, seven episodes? Yes, the tree is devoid of fruit, but the Messiah will inspect it anyway and declare that no one will find sustenance from it ever again. The temple's days are numbered at this point and he will increasingly declare it and show why it's a good declaration. Verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem and he, <coughs> excuse me, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. This is the second of three prophetic actions. The first was the entrance into Jerusalem riding on the colt. Um, the second... Wait, no, this is, this is the third, sorry. <laughs> um, the first was when we have he, the entrance into Jerusalem riding on the cult. The second was the inspection of declaration of doom over the fruit tree, a fig tree. The third is here where Yeshua fulfills Malachi 3, 1 through 2. Um, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly be at his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller soap. <coughs> Sorry. Yeshua rode in allergies. Yeshua rode into town, inspected the temple and went to Bethany for the night. In the morning, he returned on foot and inspected a fig tree for fruit and found none and declared judgment. Then he entered into the temple to carry out a prophetic act of judgment against the table and its administrators. You need to know that this was a unique act performed in order to fulfill scripture. All those memes that tell you you have the right to go into a place and overturn tables? Are you the Messiah? Do you get to do this every time you're miffed when he only did it just this once? I know John says twice, but I believe that's a literary device. And even if he did do it twice, it was only twice, and it was to fulfill scripture. Neither you or I get to fulfill scripture like that. Sorry. Sometimes we get uppity and forget what we are and forget who he is compared to us. And they killed him for it. So if you get flack for behaving boorishly, don't go back on social media complaining. Yeshua was provoking the coming crucifixion because that was the plan. That's what needed to happen. It was not plan B. Okay. 
And so now history, okay? According to Ben Witherington's social rhetorical commentary on the Gospel of Mark, and I love that scholar, until 30 of the Common Era, these sales were carried out on the Mount of Olives in the four markets run by the Sanhedrin, which is the Supreme Court. But in 30 of the Common Era, the high priest Caiaphas, or Annas, his father-in-law who really ran the show, authorized sales within the court of the Gentiles on the Temple Mount because they had control there and could profit from it. So the sales weren't new. They were actually necessary. What's new is the location. But I want you to notice what it says. Sometimes we skim over this thinking we already know what is there. One, he drove out those who sold and those who bought. Why is this? Well, no one was supposed to carry anything onto the Temple Mount, and that includes a money bag, which we will talk about in a few weeks. It was supposed to be a worshipful and orderly place, a house of prayers um, for all nations, as per Isaiah 56. Psalms of Solomon um, 17, verses 21 through 22, tell us about the expectation that the Messiah would cleanse Jerusalem of the Gentile defilement. How ironic that when Messiah came, he would perform judgment on a defiled temple on behalf of the Gentile worshipers. But remember, Psalms of Solomon isn't scripture. See the Lord, O oh, sea Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over Israel, your servant, in the time which you choose, O oh God. Undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to cleanse Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction. And that's from the Brenton Septuagint. Also, he only performed this at the temple marketplaces, not the ones on the Mount of Olives. The problem wasn't the business, it was the location. The business was needed for those who had traveled from far away and couldn't be expected to travel with a lamb or a goat. And who breeds their own birds? <laughs> According to Mishnah Shekelim 1.3, these money changer tables, if they were there for the paying of the yearly temple tax, they were in place from the 25th of Adar to the 1st of Nisan. If they were there for that purpose... Then this occurred at least, <coughs> goodness, two weeks before Passover. But if they were simply there to exchange foreign coins, as Jews would come from all over the empire for the purpose of the festival Hagigah, which the personal sacrifices, then it could be later than that. In any event, a needed business, but the wrong place. Um, those were the only tables that were overturned. The money changer tables, okay? Uh, three, he overturned the seats of those who sold doves. Doves were the offering of the poorest and those who um, needed certain cleansings. Now, that is what is said. What's not said? Desecration of the sanctity of temple spaces was a death penalty offense among the Romans. They took the temple of Yahweh every bit as seriously as one of their own. Yahweh was considered to be the regional God and sovereign over his own sacred space. This is how religion worked in the ancient world. If Yeshua had spilled blood or if he had done anything they considered sacrilegious, they would have arrested him on the spot and he would have been crucified long before Passover. So what those memes show, chalk it up to the accuracy of the overwhelming majority of memes that have the intention of being clever but are not 
even remotely well-informed. The um, Fortress Antonia, filled with irritated Roman soldiers, opened up onto the Temple Mount, and they wouldn't have hesitated to come and arrest and beat folks, okay? Just as they did when an angry crowd was coming after Paul in Acts 21. We have to make very sure that our reading of this account is informed entirely by the text and what we know of the actual historical context, and not from memes and not from movies. I mean, goodness sakes, I heard that the uh, the TV movie Killing Jesus, they had Herod in the Holy of Holies. Oh, gosh, they wouldn't have let that man anywhere near. Anyway, but people don't know history, and so they just make up what sounds interesting. Anyway, we will be back in just a few minutes. the second half of character and context. I couldn't remember which show I was recording. Uh, oh, and this week uh, we're talking about, you know, the uh, unfruitful fig tree and the den of robbers. Um, and I had to go and get a drink because, you know, this time of year, oh my gosh, it's allergy season. It's, uh, it's actually April Fool's Day. And although I wish that was a joke, it's it's not. My my neighbors have started, some of my neighbors mow their lawns really low. And because they've done that, it started, you know, and I got to get used to it again. Anyway, so um, we need to, uh, as I was saying right before the break, um, you know, we've got these memes and we've got a lot of misconceptions about what happened when Yeshua drove out those who bought and sold, overturned the money changers' tables, and um, turned over the seats of those who sold doves. Um, and I was mentioning that the Fortress Antonia actually opened up onto the Temple Mount, onto the northwestern corner. I had to look at this in my mind. It's been too long since I've studied it. Um, and there were Roman soldiers in there, and especially... At the Passover, they would have brought even more, and they didn't want to be there. They hated being there. Um, and if there was anything truly that they would have considered to be encroachment, ma'al, um, desecration of sacred space, they would have come in and started busting heads. So let's compare Yeshua's actions of judgment against the temple to the actions of later zealots in defending the table the temple and the horrid things they did while barricaded inside. All right. And we will talk about that. Um, when we, when we talk, when we get to chapter 13, it, it's yeah. You know, zeal is a morally neutral word. You need context to determine, um, whether that zeal is holy or unholy driving out people who are desecrating the space with worldly commerce and exploitation of the poor and who are making it difficult, if not impossible, for Gentiles to worship. You know, and he's doing it in a way that did not bring Roman soldiers down on his head, you know, is not to be compared with the actions of the Jewish zealots 40 years later. Like I said, we'll talk about that more when we start chapter 13. We'll do a whole 
lesson on the destruction of the temple by the Romans in 70 of the common era. Uh, verse 16, this is chapter 11, of course. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, Yeshua here, he is just carrying out the existing Temple Mount regulations. There's nothing controversy about this, except that he's attacking the entire temple infrastructure related to buying and selling on the premises. Not only that, he's potentially stopping people from using the temple as a shortcut for carrying things from one end of Jerusalem to the other. No one was permitted to carry anything, not even a walking stick, and shoes were removed. And this actually backs up later Jewish writings. In Mishnah uh, Barakot 9.5, the Mishnah teaches that several, teaches several temple-related halakot. One may not act irreverently or conduct himself flippantly opposite the eastern gate of the Temple Mount, which is aligned opposite the Holy of Holies. In deference to the temple, one may not enter the Temple Mount with his staff, his shoes, his money belt, or even the dust on his feet. One may not make the temple a shortcut to pass through it. And through an, um, a fortiori inference, all the more so, one may not spit on the Temple Mount. The Mishnah relates... At the conclusion of all blessings recited in the temple, those reciting the blessing would say, Blessed are you, Lord, God of Israel, until everlasting the world. All right. Verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. And there's so much here. Um, Yeshua is quoting Isaiah 56. So let's look at verses 6 through 8. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will yet, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Newsflash. All nations were not permitted to enter into the house, the temple. There was a dividing wall called the Soreg that gave warnings in multiple languages that any non-Jews who went past the wall would be killed. Now, Isaiah said the house was to be a house of prayer, but the Gentiles could not come to the house, only onto the temple mount itself. Oh, they could pay for sacrifices to be made, but they couldn't bring and uh, they couldn't bring them in. And worship themselves. So they could be joyful, you know, outside the house of prayer, but not in the house of prayer. Only at a distance. And so it's segregation, all right? And 
And now the place they were permitted to be was noisy with the bustle of commerce and there were animals being sold, as well as coins with idolatrous images changing hands. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Now the house, far from serving in the function of being a house of prayer for all nations, had become a national shrine. Remember that Mark's audience, unlike Matthew's, is a mixed audience of Jews and Romans. Matthew's audience is Jewish. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get to that. Um, and probably none of them had ever been to the temple. Um, Mark's Roman audience. It was only the wealthiest of Jews who could afford the money and time for the pilgrimage and then only once in a lifetime, generally. There were four temple courts. The court of the priests, where the altar and slaughtering area was located. The court of the Israelites, where the Israelite men could be, um, generally while they were involved in prayers and waiting for their turn to sacrifice. The court of the women, which is as close as women were allowed to get to the altar, and the Hekal, which is the actual temple building that contained the holy place and the holy of holies. So they were separated from the holy place and the altar um, by a huge wall and gate. Outside the court of the women and surrounding the temple complex was the Soreg with the warnings telling Gentiles to keep out or else. Uh, certainly when Paul later says it in Christ, there is no Jew nor Gentile, no male or female, slave or free. He had this situation in mind. Now the den of robbers judgment is also often mischaracterized. Yeshua is quoting from Jeremiah 7. This is a long passage here. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there his word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not Trust in these deceptive words, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. And I want you to notice all those things were called abominations, too. Stealing, murder, adultery, swearing falsely, you know, and idolatry. So, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first. And see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. Of course, that is hearkening back to Eli and his sons. Um, and now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord. 
And when I spoke to you persistently and you did not listen, when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, trusting in the temple, and to the place that I gave you into your fathers as I did in Shiloh. So he's saying he's going to raise it. Okay, this is in the time of Jeremiah, before the Babylonian exile. Now, a den of robbers isn't a place where robbers rob people. A den of robbers is the place robbers retreat to after they've committed their crimes. He has his fingers pointed directly at the high priest and his cronies, who he is calling crooks. And he's calling the temple their hideout, a place where they hole up after bilking innocent people. He's talking to all the leadership, actually. And when he did this, he was saying that Yahweh would destroy this temple just like he destroyed the the tabernacle and temple hybrid building in Shiloh, which was administrated by Eli and his corrupt sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were guilty of sexual sin with the women who would come to make sacrifice. To be compared to them was horrifying. Uh, chapter 11, verse 18. And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all of the crowd was astonished at his teaching. All right, so it's now finally become too much for the chief priests and scribes. This is the second incidence of two groups coming together in order to plot a way to destroy Yeshua. They know that he is judged and condemned them publicly, and they're scared now. The crowds are eating it up. And if they move against him, they fear the consequences, and rightly so. You know, I doubt the crowds knew Jeremiah well enough to catch more than the general insult, but the scribes knew. The crowd would not take kindly to any threats against their beloved temple, but they did resent the wealth and power of the Sadducean temple hierarchy. And we know this from Josephus. Now, um, let's look at um, Babylonian Talmud um, Barakot 32a. Speaking of that verse in Isaiah, the Gemara cites that Rabbi Yohanan said, any priest who killed a person may not lift his hands in the priestly blessing as it is stated. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Your hands are full of blood. Here we see that the priestly blessing performed with hands spread forth is not accepted when performed by priests whose hands are full of blood. And of course, this is going to happen. Verse 19, and when evening came, they went out of the city. And they're going to be guilty of Yeshua's murder, just like David was guilty of Uriah's murder, even though he had Joab, Joab conspire to make it come about, you know, even though it was from the enemy, quote unquote. Oh, verse 19, and when evening came, they went out of the city. So they remained on the premises. Um, probably Yeshua was teaching uh, until the temple gates were closed. This is the end of the account of the second day, and presumably they stayed in Bethany again, does not say. Verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Okay, so now we are on day three, and they are presumably coming from Bethany back the same way they came the morning before. And the fig tree that Yeshua had prophesied would never feed anyone 
ever again was destroyed. And I can't even imagine what this would look like. But if they can tell the roots are even withered, it must be pretty extensively damaged. So they can see where there were once roots and there's now only a withered mess. Ever know anyone who denied Yeshua? I've seen this happen to human beings. Where they quickly became, you know, they become everything they were before salvation and worse because the spirit is withdrawn from them and everything they believe they accomplished through their own virtue in honor of Yahweh is gone. Because the spirit's gone, they don't see it and they're deceived. In the same way as the fig tree, the temple will be torn down to the foundations in 70 the common era and the stones toppled over uh, the walls of the temple mount down into the city, which is exactly where they found them, all around the mount. Now, why did Yeshua choose a fig tree? Um, here are two verses. Uh, the first is comparing God's people to prostitutes. Okay, and the second is detailing judgment against the nation. So the stunning thing is, again, as it was hundreds of years previous to this, Yahweh's condemning the Jews of behaving like the nations again. The temple has become a political, financial, and banking center, entirely worldly, not any different than the temple of Artemis, because it was all those things too. Uh, a business enterprise for the benefit of one small group at the expense of the poor and foreigners. It is no longer a place of peace and safety and prayer. And Yeshua signed his own death warrant when he condemned it through his prophetic action. Um, here we go. So Hosea 2.12 And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. Isaiah 34, verse 4. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. All right. Uh, back to the this week's text, chapter 21. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So we went over some verses in the first half about fig trees within the setting of judgment, but the fig tree is um, also tied to the blessings of the Messianic age, of which the leadership obviously felt that they were worthy. Everyone always feels they're worthy, right? Micah 4, verses 1 through 5. As a matter of fact, the more unworthy you are, the more worthy you, <laughs> you feel you are of good stuff. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall flow the, shall go forth the law, excuse me, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples 
and shall decide their disputes for strong nations far away. So he's going to be this greater than Moses here, uh, who couldn't handle all the judgment on his own. No human can. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war any more, but shall sit every man, here we go, under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken, for all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Zechariah 3, verses 8 through 10. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. And that always means the Messiah. Um, it occurs like five times. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave the inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And, okay, we're going to just handle the... So, I mean, vines and fig trees, classic symbols of the Messianic age. And so you'll see them pop up in the Gospels. Now I'm just going to handle this last section of our verses today as a whole. Um, and Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that he, what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And who, and where, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So those memes, okay, used to justify so much flesh in people who do not lament over turning tables, but are on the lookout for opportunities. The disciples are in awe about the destruction of one lone fig tree but Yeshua has to catch them before they go too far in desiring to do such things and pronounce judgment. Remember, he's all over them about ambition, okay? They're told first to have faith in God as opposed to faith in the temple and the whole sacrificial system. Yeah, because it's going to be gone soon. And I believe he was pointing at the temple mount when he says this. He's talking about the judgment of a house of prayer that has become a worldly, oppressive commercial system. This temple will be cast down and they should pray for just that because it's an abomination now. For an end of this wickedness, the evil of the family of Caiaphas and Annas, the evil will not go unpunished forever and despite appearances, because this would take another 40 years, the judgment would come. However, and this is a big deal here, they are not to pray for judgment with hearts that are not correct before God. They can't be wanting this judgment the way that the genocide twins, John and James, wanted to destroy Samaria with fire and brimstone. They must want an end to wickedness, not revenge. 
This can't be a petty thing or a show of force or power. Like William Wilberforce and his compatriots going against slavery in England, they did it with pure hearts, bent on destroying wickedness and not focused on destroying the human beings who were practicing this abomination. I mean, Wilberforce hated slavery more than we... He saw... You know, he and his friends saw what was going on firsthand. You know, we're just looking back into history, but he saw the horrors. And if he could be civil and and still um, give all humans dignity and see all humans as, as trapped in this horrible system, then, you know, we can do it too. And that's what Yeshua is telling his disciples here. When we pray for judgment... Okay, we have to have clean hearts or we will become tyrants and we will do great evil. History is full of people who set out to become liberators who became enslavers. So much of what Yeshua does is preparation so that these kids will not become worse than the wickedness that they have to condemn. It's so easy to become self-righteous and to just begin virtue signaling when wrongs need to be addressed in the right way. The temple will be judged and destroyed. The priesthood will be demolished for all intents and purposes. But don't rejoice when it happens. You know, he's telling them, forgive and be there in the aftermath. Not as a heckler, but as a lifeline. We, uh, we're just all too eager to um, stand and say, I told you so. <laughs> Uh, I don't know exactly why Lot's wife was looking back, but, you know, sometimes I wonder if she was taking a selfie with, you know, the, I know there weren't any cell phones going, um, with, with the dis destruction. You know, you just never know. Anyway, next, next week, uh, there's going to be a trick question and Yeshua is going to lasso these people into their own words. It's going to be a lot of fun. See you then.